Chapter 15, Part 2 of Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. Chapter 15, Anti-Aircraft Guns, Immobile Weapons, Part 2. Attempts have been and still are being made to adapt an explosive projectile to this gun but so far the measure of success achieved has not proved very promising. There are immense difficulties connected with the design of an explosive shell of this class, charged with a high explosive, especially in connection with the timing. So far as dependence upon percussive detonation is concerned, there is practically no difficulty. Should such a missile strike, say, the motor of an aeroplane, or even the hull of the craft itself, the latter would be practically destroyed but all things considered, it is concluded that more successful results are likely to be achieved by the armor-piercing bullet striking the mechanism than by an explosive projectile. The Krupp Company finally realized the difficulties pertaining to the projectile problem in attacks upon aerial craft. So far as dirigibles are concerned, shrapnel is practically useless, inasmuch as even should the bag be riddled by the flying fragments, little effective damage would be wrought the craft would be able to regain its haven. Accordingly, efforts were concentrated upon the perfection of two new types of projectiles, both of which were directed more particularly against the dirigible. The one is the incendiary shell, obus fumingini, while the other is a shell, the contents of which, upon coming into contact with the gas contained within the gas bag, set up certain chemical reactions which precipitate an explosion and fire. The incendiary shells are charged with a certain compound which is ignited by means of a fuse during its flight. This fuse arrangement coincides very closely with that attached to ordinary shrapnel, inasmuch as the timing may be set to induce ignition at different periods, such as either at the moment it leaves the gun before or when it strikes the envelope of the dirigible the shell is fitted with a tracer that is to say upon becoming ignited it leaves a trail of smoke corresponding with the trail of a rocket so that its passage through the air may be followed with facility this shell however was designed to fulfil a duel not only will it fire the gaseous contents out of the dirigible but it has an explosive effect upon striking an incombustible portion of the aircraft such as the machinery propellers or car when it will cause sufficient damage to throw the craft out of action. The elaborate trials which were carried out with the Obus Fumingini certainly were spectacular so as they went. Two small spherical balloons, ten feet in diameter, and attached to one thousand feet of cable, were set aloft. The anti-aircraft guns themselves were placed about fifty-one hundred feet distant. Owing to the inclement weather, the balloons were unable to attain a height of more than 200 feet in a direct vertical line above the ground. The guns were trained and fired, but the one balloon was not hit until the second round, while the third escaped injury until the fifth round. When struck, they collapsed instantly. Though the test was not particularly conclusive and afforded no reliable data, one point was ascertained. The trail of smoke emitted by the shell enabled its trajectory to be followed with ease. Upon the conclusion of these trials, which were the most successful recorded, quick-firing tests in the horizontal plane were carried out.
The best performance in this instance was the discharge of five rounds in eight seconds. In this instance, the paths of the projectiles were simple and easy to follow, the flight of the shell being observed until it fell some 18,670 feet away. But the Krupp firm have found that trials upon the testing ground with a captive balloon differ very materially from stern tests in the field of actual warfare. Practically nothing has been heard of the two projectiles during this war, as they have proved an absolute failure. Some months ago, the world was startled by the announcement that the leading German armament firm had acquired the whole of the interest in an aerial torpedo which had been evolved by the Swedish artillerist Gustav Unge, and it was predicted that in the next war widespread havoc would be brought therewith. Remarkable claims were advanced for this projectile the foremost being that it would travel for a considerable distance through the air and alight upon the objective with infallible accuracy the torpedo in question was subjected to exacting tests in great britain which failed to substantiate all the claims which were advanced and it is significant to observe that little has been heard of it during the present conflict it is urged in certain technical quarters however that the aerial torpedo will prove to be the most successful projectile that can be used against aircraft i shall deal with this question in a later chapter during the early days of the war anti-aircraft artillery appeared to be a much overrated arm the successes placed to its credit were insignificant this was due to the artillerymen being unfamiliar with the new arm and the conditions which prevail when firing into space since actual practice became possible great advances in marksmanship have been recorded and the accuracy of such fire today is striking fortunately the airman possesses the advantage he can maneuver beyond the range of the hostile weapons at the moment ten thousand feet represents the extreme altitude to which projectiles can be hurled from the arms of this character which are now in use and they lack destructiveness at that range for their velocity is virtually expended picking up the range is still as difficult as ever the practice followed by the germans serves to indicate the tutened thoroughness of method in attacking such problems even if success does not ensue the favorite German principle of disposing anti-aircraft artillery is to divide the territory to be protected into equilateral triangles, the sides of which have a length of about six miles or less, according to the maximum effective range of the pieces at an elevation of twenty-three and one-half degrees. The guns are disposed at the corners of the triangles, as indicated in figures 13-14, taking the one triangle as an example the method of picking up the range may be explained as follows the several guns at the corners of the triangle each of which can be trained through the three hundred sixty degrees in the horizontal plane are in telephonic touch with an observer o stationed some distance away the airman a enters the area of the triangle the observer takes the range and communicates with the gunner b who fires his weapon the shell bursts at one, emitting a red flame and smoke. The observer notes the altitude and relative position of the explosion in regard to the aircraft, while Gunner B himself observes whether the shell has burst to the right or to the left of the objective and corrects accordingly. The observer commands C to fire, and another shell is launched which emits a yellow flame and smoke.
It bursts at two, according to the observer, while Gunner C also notes whether it is to the right or to the left of the target and corrects accordingly. Now Gunner D receives the command to fire, and the shell which explodes at three throws off a white flame and smoke. Gunner D likewise observes whether there is any deviation to right or left of the target and corrects in a similar manner. From the sum of the three rounds, the observer corrects the altitude, completes his calculations, and communicates his instructions for correction to the three gunners, who now merely train their weapons for altitude. The objective is to induce the shells hurled from the three corners of the triangle to burst at a common point four, which is considered to be the most critical spot for the aviator. The fire is then practically concentrated from the three weapons upon the apex of a triangular cone, which is held to bring the machine within the danger zone. This method of finding the range is carried out quickly, two or three seconds being occupied in the task. In the early days of the war, the German anti-aircraft artillerymen proved sadly deficient in this work, but practice improved their fire to a marvelous degree, with the result that at the moment it is dangerous for an aviator to essay his task within an altitude of 6,000 feet, which is the range of the average anti-aircraft gun. The country occupied by a belligerent is divided up in this manner into a series of triangles. For instance, a machine entering hostile territory from the east enters the triangle ABC and consequently comes within the range of the guns posted at the corners of the triangle. Directly he crosses the line BC and enters the adjacent triangle he passes beyond the range of gun A but comes within the range of the gun posted at D and, while within the triangular area, is under fire from the guns BCD he turns and crosses the line a c but in so doing enters another triangle a c e and comes range of the gun posted at e the accompanying diagram represents an area of country divided up into such triangle and the position of the guns while the circle round the latter indicate the training arc of the weapons each of which is a complete circle in the horizontal plane the dotted line represents the aviator's line of flight and it will be seen that no matter how he twists and turns he is always within the danger zone while flying over hostile territory the moment he outdistances one gun he comes within range of another the safety of the aviator under these circumstances depends upon his maintaining an altitude exceeding the range of the guns below the most powerful of which have a range of eight thousand to ten thousand feet or on speed combined with rapid twisting and turning, or erratic undulating flight, rendering it extremely difficult for the gun-layer to follow his path with sufficient celerity to ensure accurate firing. At altitudes ranging between 4,000 and 6,000 feet, the aeroplane comes within the range of the rifle and machine-gun firing. The former, however, unless discharged in volleys, with the shots covering a wide area, is not particularly dangerous, inasmuch as the odds are overwhelmingly against the rifleman. He is not accustomed to following and firing upon a rapidly moving objective, the result being that ninety-nine times out of a hundred he fails to register a hit. On the other hand, the advantage accruing from machine-gun fire is that, owing to the continuous stream of bullets projected, there is a greater possibility of the gun being trained upon the objective and putting it hors de combat.
but taking all things into consideration and notwithstanding the achievements of the artillerist the advantages are overwhelmingly on the side of the aviator when one reflects upon the total sum of aircraft which have been brought to earth during the present campaign it will be realized that the number of prizes is insignificant in comparison with the quantity of ammunition expended end of chapter fifteen part two